Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcast app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. Hello. Hi. Is this a Gable residence? Yeah. What can you tell me about your sister's disappearance, please? Oh, that's been so many years, I don't even know no more. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner, and this is Season 6, Vanishing Act, the untold story of Kristen Deedy and Bob Anderson. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. And if you're listening with children, consider whether it's appropriate for them as well. I'm co-producing this season with Jeremy Fugelberg. Last time, we learned quite a bit about that fateful weekend in August of 1993 when Kristen and Bob drove to North Dakota, then simply vanished. In this episode, you'll learn much more about who Kristen and Bob were. We'll explore their backgrounds and put their relationship into context leading into the summer of 1993, just before they traveled to Wishick. If we're going to try to understand who Kristen Joy Didi was, we'll have to start at the beginning. And in the beginning, Kristen was not her name. She was born Valerie Gable in July of 1963. Jeremy and I will continue to refer to her as Kristen, the name she apparently chose for herself later in life. But as you'll remember from the last episode, some people still call her Valerie to this day. And when I converse with those people, I do too. But all you need to remember, really, is that Valerie is Kristen, and Kristen is Valerie. She grew up on the Gable Farm outside of Wishick in south-central North Dakota, the same agricultural town she and Bob traveled to the weekend they disappeared. The town lies in McIntosh County, one of three counties that make up what's called the Germans from Russia Triangle. I've told a story from this region before, in Season 2, about the 1976 murders of Wade and Ellen Zick in the town of Zeeland, just 30 miles or 50 kilometers from Wishick. I'm going to simply replay a short segment about Germans from Russia country from Season 2, right now. McIntosh County lies in south-central North Dakota, an area often referred to as Germans from Russia country. That's because the area was settled predominantly by Germans and a culture of people known as Germans from Russia. Nearly 120,000 people of German heritage left Russia for the U.S. between 1870 and 1920. A lot of them settled in the Dakotas. This area's most prominent celebrity is Lawrence Welk, the American musician, band leader, and host of The Lawrence Welk Show. Lawrence Welk grew up just 30 miles from Zealand, and that accent, his way of speaking, that's his German heritage seeping through. And you can still hear and see that heritage to this day. Go to any small-town restaurant or diner in south-central North Dakota, and you will find traditional German dishes on the permanent menu. Um, well, of course, you have the cheese buttons down in this area, uh, the Feschkikla, um, the sauerkraut noodles, uh, pickling watermelon. Uh, I guess they pickled like a lot of stuff besides watermelon, green beans, almost everything they like to pickle. 
This is Brian Grove, the site coordinator for the Lawrence Welk Homestead Museum, located near the town of Strasburg, North Dakota. German-Russian Triangle, and it's a lot within the three counties here, uh, McIntosh, Logan, and Emmons County, uh, where they're very prevalent in that culture. Very proud, um, and, and even just proud of their heritage a lot. They're very traditional, they're very uh, proud of their foods and all their customs and their religion and, and their home stories that they came from. I guess uh, from living down here, a lot of them would describe themselves as stubborn. As they would say, stuck in their ways. The following is a local TV news segment about Wishick from 1990, three years before Kristen and Bob disappeared. Audio is courtesy of the State Historical Society of North Dakota. This week's Our Town straddles highways 3 and 13 in northern McIntosh County and is known to many as the sauerkraut capital, thanks primarily to its German heritage and October Food Fest. The town was founded in 1898 and named for J.H. Wishick, who obtained the right-of-way for the Sioux Line Railroad. Population has held steady at 1,300 since 1980, and while Main Street has some empty storefronts, it doesn't mean the merchants have forsaken Wishick. Service-wise, Wishick has just about two of most everything, including car and implement dealers, hardware stores, beauty shops, and grain elevators, plus three eateries and bars, but only one undertaker. I've traveled to Wishick many times over the last seven years, ever since I first learned of Kristen and Bob's disappearance. These days, it's a tiny town of about 850 people. The main thoroughfare is Highway 13 running east-west. Like many towns out here, the first thing you'll see as you approach from a distance is the water tower. Wishick is known for a couple of things. One is the annual sauerkraut festival, which has been taking place for decades and draws people from all over the region. Here is more audio courtesy of the North Dakota State Archives. People from as far as Minneapolis are here and ready to dig in. 120 gallons of sauerkraut. Cook started cooking at 6 in the morning. The sauerkraut is made in six large vats at the firehouse and then hauled into the auditorium where it's ready to be devoured. Another thing Wishick is known for is its mascot, a blue badger. A statue stands in the city park next to the old school gymnasium. Visitors to Wishick can't miss this fellow sitting proudly on the south side of Beaver Avenue, where he's known quite simply as the Wishick Badger. Not quite as big as the other animal landmarks, but he signifies something just as important. In Wishick with the no-name badger, I'm Dave Finger, Meyer Television News. Now we've all heard that in small towns, everybody knows everybody and everyone knows each other's business. When it comes to Wishick, I've learned firsthand how people gather such information about each other. First off, they just blatantly ask you, even if you're a total stranger. The first time I visited Wishick was on a hot summer day in 2015. I was on vacation and just passing through, so I stopped at the local burger and ice cream stand, and while I was enjoying my meal at an outside table, actually just across the street from that blue badger, a local elderly couple started chatting with me. In North Dakota, this might be called visiting. Midwesterners visit a lot. In the name of a concept called North Dakota Nice, people here enjoy small talk. You'll be standing in line at the post office and someone you've never met before will look at you and say something like, I heard they got three inches of rain over in Fargo. This took some getting used to for me after living in Scandinavia for over 20 years, a place where you pretty much have to get stuck in an elevator together before you just start speaking to a random stranger. 
In North Dakota, though, talking about the weather is an accepted icebreaker. And yes, visiting and lighthearted chit-chat is pleasant, and I suppose it is nice. However, honestly, weather talk is also an entry point into intelligence gathering. It's a foot in the door of a conversation. And once a total stranger has their foot in the door, you can expect them to try and stick around for a little bit. As I sat there in Wishick eating my cheeseburger, as a city slicker might say, minding my own business, the local couple did this very thing. Hot enough for you? The gentleman asked. I don't remember exactly what I answered, but then came a type of cloaked interrogation, all in the guise of pleasantries and North Dakota nice. The woman asked, Are you just passing through town? Yes, I said. Oh, what's your name? She asks. Now right there, I was already feeling a little uncomfortable, but I gave him an answer. I was too taken off guard not to answer, and really, why be rude? James, I said. My name is James. And then, without batting an eye, she followed up with, What's your last name? A part of me kind of wanted to say, My last name is pronounced none of your business. But I didn't. I told them. Again, why be rude? Which brings me to the second way that small-town residents learn everything about each other. Gossip. Hot enough for you was the entry point. Then the follow-up questions, and then, potentially anyway, this intel might be spread around. A guy named James Walner passed through town today. He ate a burger and a shake. He drove a brown pickup. He was headed to Aberdeen, South Dakota. And look, I'm not critical of neighborly pleasantries. I'm all for it. I'm just suggesting there may be more to it than we think. Listen to this. After one of my trips to Wishick several years ago, I called a gentleman named Fran, who worked at the Wishick Star newspaper at the time. I wanted to ask him about Bob and Kristen's disappearance. He was very helpful and willing to help. A fellow journalist, a reporter, so he understood what my job is and what I was doing. When I introduced myself to him on the phone, he said something like, Oh, that explains things. Your visits to town have caused some suspicion and curiosity in the community. That's not a direct quote, but it was something very similar. Now, I know exactly which of my visits he was referring to. I'd traveled to Wishick with my computer and a scanner and visited the library located at the school in town. And there I sat for a few hours and scanned Wishick high school yearbooks from the mid-1970s and early 80s, photos of Kristen and Clyde Deedy, her husband, who graduated there in 1976. I also scanned old issues of the Wishick Star newspaper and found a small article about how some residents of Wishick had traveled to Wapaton for a wedding on August 14, 1993. As I sat there in the library, a gentleman approached and said something like, Boy, we sure needed that rain, or something similar. I think I nodded, maybe I said, sure did, and then I returned to my work. Then he said, What you working on? I said, I'm just doing some research. Oh, he said. Then he nodded, and he just stood there, and again, I returned to my work. I guess he was waiting for more information, and when I didn't offer any, he said, What are you researching exactly? This time I looked right at him and I said, I'd rather not say. So, when I spoke with Fran at the Wishick Star and he said, Your visits have caused some curiosity, 
I knew it was my encounter at the library that he was referring to. Somehow, that little event had made it all around town. For me, the guy that would rather not say, Wishick, North Dakota is not the sauerkraut capital or the town with the blue badger. It's where Kristen and Bob vanished. It's the place where people think they want to know everything, where they ask lots of questions about everything under the sun. That is, everything except what happened to Kristen Didi and Bob Anderson. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Here I am again with my microphone in Wishik in October of 2021. This looks like a senior citizen center over here. Excuse me, sir. Hi. Hi, my name is James. I'm with uh, Forum Communications in Fargo. I'm working on a story. I wonder if I could ask you a couple questions. If I can answer. Well, that's the question is, if you can answer it. Have you ever heard a story in, here in town about a missing girl named Kristen Didi? Valerie Goble went missing in 93? No, no, no. Never heard the story? No, never heard that. But I I knew some Didis, but it, it was men, different names, yeah. I decided I'd try my luck at a local establishment, the Big Screen Bar. And find the door. First, I approached three people sitting at a high table near the bar. Missing Valerie Goble, Kristen Didi from Wishick from 1993. Nope, don't know that. August of 93, I was a sophomore in high school. I heard about it, but I, I know nothing about it. So what did, what did you hear, though? That, there, that somebody might have killed him and buried him. That's, that's part of the belief. Are they, both of them are still missing? Or? Yeah. I have no idea. I've never heard about it. I appreciate it. here? Yeah. In 93. Why don't I remember that? At a table against the wall were two women enjoying an afternoon drink. May I bother you for a second? Hi, sure. I didn't start working here until 92. Yeah. No, I don't remember. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you. Finally, I thought, the bartender. Always ask the bartender. No, ever, ever heard any... I honestly actually just had to ask him about it because I have no clue. Yeah. It's before me. All right, well, thank you. All right, thanks. I tried two more patrons, but they hadn't heard about Kristen and Bob. I decided to try another establishment, and in the local drugstore, I did find someone who knew exactly what I was talking about. She disappeared, and it was... I mean, just like she came off the face of the earth. 
and they looked and looked and looked and you know and then they thought well probably somebody snatched her well then they found that vehicle and yeah yeah what was your name bill nitschke yeah i've I've known the gables for you know I've, i've known the whole family real well for quite a while You've known them for a while. How often does Valerie's disappearance come up? You know, I'd, it, to me, it's a really touchy subject, you know, and I guess I don't bring it up to none of the kids. You know, it's just leave well enough alone, you know, and that's, I just, you know, I've talked with Dwight about it that one time. and Dwight is one of Kristen's brothers. And he kind of said, you know, it's just like she disappeared and, you know, what do you do? So... Have you ever heard anyone else talking about it around town much, or is it? No, no. I just I had asked him about it one time, and he had just mentioned it. You know, we had a conversation about her, and that was about it. You know, but. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Kristen's parents were Darwin and Betty Gable, both now deceased. Years ago, they moved from the farm into a house in town. The last time I rolled through Wishick, I spotted Kristen's sister and niece outside the house, so I grabbed my microphone and I stopped. Hello. Hi. Is this a Gable residence? Yeah. So my name is James Walner. I am going to be doing a podcast about your missing sister, Valerie. Wondering if I could talk, ask you a couple questions. Go ahead. Okay, thank you. Hi. Can I get your name? Brenda Gable. Nice to meet you. Sister of my missing sister, uh, Valerie. And And that's the niece. My niece, Sherry Gable. Nice to meet you. Hi. What can you tell me about your sister's disappearance, please? Oh, that's been so many years, I don't even know no more. Kristen was the sixth of nine children. Ronnie is the oldest one, and then it was me, Brenda, and then it was Larry, then it was Kevin, then it was Sandy, then it was Valerie, Brian, then Dwight, and then Twyla. Learning what Kristen was like as a child has been a challenge for me. Her sister Brenda really only had this to offer. She liked to play cards and, and games and stuff. That's about it. And here is Larry, Kristen's brother. I finally reached him a couple days ago. We'll hear more from Larry in future episodes. Can you just tell me what she was like a little bit as a kid or anything? Oh, I don't know. She was my sister. She got <laughs> along good and everything, you know. Mm-hmm. So, was she? Of course, I got along good with all my with all my uh, brothers and sisters. So. <laughs> was she nice, mean, happy, sad? No, she was... She was pretty happy and everything that I know of, but of course she never, she never talked too much what her problems were, but. Just getting a hold of childhood photos of Kristen has proved a challenge. Here I am way back in September of 2015, speaking with Kristen's mother, Betty, on the phone. She's since passed away. At the time, I found this response odd, but we learned last time that someone, possibly Kristen, removed all of Kristen's photos from the farm gentleman writing a story about um, Valerie's disappearance. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had any photographs of Valerie um, that I could use in my story that I could get from you. Pictures you mean? Excuse me? Pictures? 
Yes, pictures. No, I don't. You don't have any? I don't have any. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. Kristen's sister and niece explain this this way. Yeah, we weren't a picture family taker. We didn't take much pictures of anything. You'll remember Tiffany from the last episode, Kristen's friend in Bloomington. My impression was that um, Kristen came from a very small town and her parents were um, very controlling. She had issues. There was some, you know, abuse at home and she wasn't real educated. I I think I remember her saying that she stayed home a lot from school. Um, Don't get me wrong. She was smart. She was a smart girl. But she had not a lot of confidence. What I do know about Kristen is this. After high school, before she married Clyde Deedy, she changed her name from Valerie Gable to Kristen Joy Devlin. But why change her name? Her niece, Sherry, explained that Kristen was basically estranged from the Gable family. She was on a following out period at the time, so she wasn't really talking to none of us. Kristen's brother, Larry, speculated this way. As far as her changing her name before she married Clyde, do you have any thoughts on well, that? Well, I don't know what the deal really was on that, but I heard that too, that she changed her name. I don't know now if if Clyde made her change her name or what, I don't know. But what was the reason? I don't know. But here is Kristen's nephew, Travis. I think I know why she changed her name. My grandpa was really being an abusive person and other things were going on when her kids and then my grandpa had an attitude. I think it was his way or the highway. Because I think Barry starts speaking her mind out what happened when she was a child. Abuses and, you know, other things, you know. One person who did learn about Kristen's childhood was Susan Nice, former director of Cornerstone Advocacy Services, which helped battered women, including Kristen. I was the executive director of a fairly large Family Violence Prevention Agency that served suburban Hennepin County. Kristen came from the most dysfunctional family I've ever heard of in my professional career. Not something I saw on, in a movie or read about in a book, but actually knew what she had been through because she shared that information with us. She got out of that family as as quickly as she possibly could. And to get out of that family, Kristen did two things. She changed her name, and she started her own family. In rural North Dakota, especially if you grew up on a farm, your neighbors are sometimes miles away. The Gable family were neighbors with the Dede family, also farmers. From the Dede farm to the Goble farm, it was like, I think was about eight miles away apart, somewhere on that area. So they're pretty close neighbors back in the day. They were good friends, I heard. That's what my family told me back in the day. Kristen married Clyde Dede in 1983. Their son, Mitchell, was born the next year. Three years later, they had a daughter, Deanna. Eventually, the young family moved to Bloomington, Minnesota, where Clyde enrolled in chiropractic school. Kristen had done it, pulled off a great escape from her hometown and from her family and from her past. For some reason, 
I imagine her rolling into Minnesota in the passenger seat of a packed vehicle, towing a U-Haul moving trailer. Her kids are sleeping in the back seat, forehead resting against her window, gazing out at the changing scenery. More lakes, more trees, more life. Goodbye, Valerie Gable, she whispers to herself. Long live Kristen Joy Didi. Jeremy and I went to great lengths to learn all we could about Kristen Didi from her friends and family. Here's Tiffany again. I traveled to Salt Lake City, Utah to speak with her in person. She's never forgotten her friend Kristen. She even named her own daughter after her. But it was the way she smiled, and she was almost like the Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland. She had this big smile. It was very sweet, funny. Um, and a great mother, and she loved her kids, and she did anything for her kids. And I just remember her just, she was pretty witty, and she had a, like a dry sense of humor sometimes, and and she was just amazing. You know, she was very soft-spoken. She wasn't real loud or boisterous or anything, you know, to attract attention, but, but she, her aura just spoke very loudly. How was she as a mother? With her kids. It was very touching because she was just so loving. There was never like any screaming or yelling um, or anything. Um, but uh, she just had a lot of patience for them. Um, and Kristen had a real sweet way about her. She was just, you know, had a way of talking to her kids and, you know, they enjoyed each other and she was always playing with them, like games on the floor and stuff. And yeah, she just was all about her kids. Um, Mitchell and Deanna were everything to her. Her whole house, if you walked into her house, all it was was artwork of the kids, toys. There was nothing really you could say, oh, this is Kristen's space, because it, it was just all of their space. And, but it was just, it was always very warm to come into her house. And here is Heather again, another friend and neighbor. She was just really close with her children. She didn't really even let them like, come upstairs to my house. Um, and she would call, uh, even though she's just right downstairs, um, until she really got to know us. Very protective of them, and they were very close to her. And here's Tiffany. They had the bottom floor apartment, so all she had to do was stand up, and the, the windows were kind of at eye level, you know, those old apartments in Bloomington. And so she, she could be able to, the kids had to stay right in that area, so she would keep an eye on them. Yeah. She didn't let them go far, but... I remember she was like, Mom, can I go out and play? She'd, she'd look us like, yeah, you just stay right here in front. And here's Kristen's sister and niece again, speaking with me outside their house in Wishick, recalling how Kristen never really let the kids out of her own sight. She was a very good mother. That I can tell you. I remember once when I was seen her, she wouldn't leave her kids out of her sight. So, yeah. Do you remember where that was? The fairground here. In town? Yeah, one year when they were younger. Yeah, she would never leave her children behind. That I know. 
Tiffany recalls that Kristen's son, nine-year-old Mitchell, was like his mother, soft-spoken and protective. Six-year-old Deanna was full of energy and creativity. We all know that it's common for siblings to fight, but Tiffany says... Those two really didn't, and I think more so for Mitchell, he just was very protective. And so that gives me the thought that he knew what was going on and he just wanted to be there for his sister. And she was just always really oblivious to everything. You know, Kristen tried to keep him out of everything. So she was just a normal little girl just playing with her Barbies and and this and that. And if I'd come down, she'd like, Tiffany, let me show you this. Look at my, my, my art projects. And, you know, she had art projects everywhere, taped to everything. And so she's like, I did this today and I did that today. And I'm like, oh, really? You know, and she'd just run out and go play with the neighborhood kids and in the courtyard and stuff. Before we learn about Bob Anderson, I guess this is a good a place as any to inform you about another tragic aspect of this story. Or rather, there is no good place to touch on things like this, so here we go. Kristen's son, Mitchell, who was nine years old when his mother vanished, is now deceased. I've spoken with several of his friends from high school. They all confirm, as does one of Mitchell's aunts on the Dee Dee side of the family, Mitchell took his own life in 2008 at the age of 24. Here's Tiffany with a remembrance of Mitchell Dee as a young boy. Mitchell, I just remember wanting to take care of his sister a lot. Um, he was a really neat kid, um, kind of quiet, kind of a normal boy. He was very, very aware of where his sister was and where his mom was and what they were doing all the time. While Kristen wanted to distance herself from her family, it seems that Bob Anderson was quite content with his, a family I've gotten to know quite well over the years. It's safe to say that Bob was loved dearly. Robert Michael Anderson was born on November 14, 1961, to Aldine and Matilda Anderson of Hugo, Minnesota. He was the second youngest of seven children. Here's Bob's older brother, Dean. It was a big, big family, but um, mom and dad, uh, dad never made that much money. Mom never worked, and uh, we uh, we got by, but we were happy. And here's Bob's sister Diane talking about their father. Very much uh, wanting us to have a comfortable upbringing, and um, dad would have given the shirt off his back for us. He was, and he'd always tell me, you know, Dinah. You can do anything you want in life, he says. You can go as far as you want. And, and he, was, he pushed education. They, my dad was strict, but uh, he loved us, and Mom loved us too. And they were um, great parents, I think. Bob and his siblings grew up on what they called a hobby farm. Here's his younger sister, Debbie, and then Dean again. Water the cows and feed the chickens and pick up the eggs and take care of the dog. And we had a horse and some cows and a big garden. And we all pulled together and made things happen. Did a lot of fun things going to uh, swimming at the local lakes and parks and stuff. I remember a lot of uh, Como Park, we'd go there. As a kid, he was very quiet. He used to spend uh, many hours out in the sandbox sit in his sandbox underneath the cottonwood tree in the middle of summer with a stocking cap on and a winter jacket and play with his uh, Tonka trucks. 
if I wanted to find him, that's where I would go. And we just sit and play in a sandbox and enjoy each other's company. We didn't always have to be talking to have that connection. Bob loved animals, and he adored his dog, Elmer. Bob would often give Elmer a ride around the yard on his bicycle. A real small dog, and we have pictures of him uh, with uh, Elmer on in the shoulders, and uh, he was uh, quite the character, uh, Bob. He, uh, Bob was probably an introvert, loved pets, and he, he loved people. He had a big heart, um, and he was the type of guy that you could really trust. I have so many good memories of Bob. One that stands out right now is we used to live by a number of sand pits, and we used to like to go and play at the sand pits. And we'd climb up on top, and sometimes there was puddles down in between them and such. And one of the neighbor boys says, well, let's have a mud fight, throwing mud pies at each other. And Bob said, Debbie's on my team. Well, I think it was because he didn't want to throw mud pies at his sister. <laughs> he was very sweet like that. He, he always protected me. I always looked up to him. A few years ago, I spoke with Bob's other brother, John. Speaking about Bob as a young man, John told me that everybody loved him. Bob enjoyed himself. He liked eating. He liked drinking. Quote, put a fishing pole and a beer in his hand, and he was content. Bob the young man liked outdoor sports. He was a typical Northland guy. He didn't take life too seriously, but he was very skilled as an auto mechanic and liked working with his hands. By nature, he was quiet, but when he was drinking, he was a hoot. His brother told me, We used to go to the movies together sometimes, and after a couple of beers, Bob would take a king-sized bucket of popcorn out of the garbage, punch eye holes in it, and put it over his head. Then he would walk around flirting with girls and say, I bet you want to know what I look like, don't you? Bob met Pam Larson in the late 80s, and they were married in September of 1987. The couple had two children together, a daughter, Chelsea, born 1988, and a son, Chase, born 1990. They divorced in 1992. We met Bob's son, Chase, back in episode one. He grew up believing his father just took off, but he learned at age 16 his father was a missing person, believed to be a homicide victim. You know, the more I talk with my aunt and uncles on my dad's side, the more I realize I am a lot like my dad. And I wasn't even raised by him. You know, I wasn't, he hasn't had any investment or involvement in my life since he went missing. But I enjoy, as we're sitting here on the side of a lake, (laughs) this is where I'm comfortable. You know, the woods, the fishing, hunting, you know. From what I've learned about Bob Anderson over the last seven years or so, he sounds to me like a classic, quiet empath, an observer of life, a nurturer of animals and of people. Bob could spot a wounded creature a mile away. And a wounded creature is exactly what Bob found one evening when he went to a bar in Minneapolis. It was there he met Kristen Deedy, separated from her husband, Clyde. Here's Heather again. She was with Kristen when they met Bob the first time. When um, she met Bob, it was, uh, gosh, it was just like all of a sudden her whole life changed. At the bar, is all of a sudden they were together. So she, she was like a, acted like a little seventh grader. And uh, she was touching her hair and, oh my gosh, you know, he can't like me. And 
that kind of thing. It was it was really kind of adorable. I was the girlfriend that she didn't know how to do her hair right, and she wore um, makeup like she never could have put it on before, and and um, like her clothes were mismatched a little bit. And I was the one that you know helped calm her hair down and helped her. It was like I was her big sister, kind of. And um, I helped her kind of come out of her shell. And here's Tiffany. All I knew is that he was seemed to be a good fit for Kristen, and Kristen adored him. Really? Yeah, she was pretty smitten with him. And he was very quiet. I'm very protective over Kristen. I very quiet. And we're you know the Levi's and just you know yeah. t-shirt and very um, unassuming. Just mm-hmm. but he seemed to really care about. Kristen, I, I had a feeling like this is the guy for her. Really? Yeah. It seemed like they were just really crazy about each other. And that's where they were, Bob and Kristen, in the spring of 1993. Crazy about each other. Bob had divorced the year before, and Kristen, she was in the process of making another great escape. This time from her husband, Clyde. With help from her new friends and perhaps inspired by Bob's kindness and support, she was changing, wearing makeup, dressing differently, living differently. With their support, she was growing stronger, gathering her courage, ready to confront several big hurdles ahead, including the divorce and getting those belongings back from Wishick. Now, as Jeremy and I have stated, this is an ongoing and live investigation. Going into each week of this season, we have a clear plan for these episodes, but we're also keeping things fluid as new information comes in. That happened this week. We had planned to tell you more about Clyde's domestic assault charge this week, which took place during the same time Bob and Kristen were getting to know each other that spring of 1993. But Jeremy and I got a hold of a key individual on the matter, so we're excited to say you'll hear from her in the next episode. Hopefully, we'll also get Clyde's perspective on some of these new things we've learned, if he will speak with us again. And also, we know you're wondering, so let me just say, yes, we will be talking about Bob's Dodge van, where it was found, and why it's significant. And we do hope to speak with Deanna, Mitchell's sister, and you'll hear more from the Anderson family about what law enforcement have told them about their brother's case, and well, much more. Still to come in future episodes of this season, Vanishing Act, the untold story of Kristen Deedee and Bob Anderson. Always like looking over his shoulder and fidgety. I, I drove away and she put her foot directly underneath my tire. At that point, the judge said, "You, I don't think you get it. She was appalled as were other people in the courtroom. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. Remember, the investigation into what happened to Kristen and Bob remains an open case. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. If you have any information about this case, contact law enforcement at the Logan County, North Dakota Sheriff's Office. The number is 701-754-2495. Please consider subscribing to the podcast on Spotify or Apple or anywhere you get your podcasts. 
If you like this show and want others to discover it, please consider leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Just search Dakota Spotlight on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.